God. God comes first, always. And the first thing we do in response to the grace of God in the gospel is give ourselves back to him. Verse 1, he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We talked about that in some depth last week. Living sacrifices, lives offered up to him for his purposes and for his kingdom. This morning we are beginning to look at how that fleshes out in our relationships with each other. How do we do Christianity having been redeemed by Christ? What do saved sinners do? I guess that's sort of the question. We live differently. That's what. We live differently because we think differently. Back to verses 1 and 2, our minds are being renewed and transformed. We are not what we were. Our motives are different. We used to live for ourselves, arranging our lives strictly in accordance with our own happiness. And now our happiness takes a new place after the will of God. And as we grow in faith, we find that our happiness actually comes from being in the will of God and knowing that we have done right by Him. That's when you know you're making it as a Christian. Happiness has a new source and it springs from faith. So Paul is going to explain how the transformed mind and offered up body function in the real world. And he starts with the church, the new family. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. It's not an individual affair. Church is not a gathering of individual units to receive instructions for their separate lives. The church is the body of Christ. It's a living, interconnected, carefully designed organism. That's what the way the New Testament writers present it to us. So the question is, how does a Christian relate to other Christians? How do we think about church? The church. A church. Our church. And what about all those other folks in the pews? I mean, who are they in my life anyway? Those are the questions. They're big questions, and we will start to answer them by moving ahead here in Romans. The first place we start is in our thinking again, in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. The word for think or thinking occurs in some form three times here, so obviously that's really his emphasis. Church life has a whole lot to do with how you think. And he's talking about how you think about yourself first. Before Paul even tells us the first point, he gives us an example. He says, verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say. Notice that his authority to speak is strictly a work of God's grace. You know, Paul was not an apostle by virtue of his super qualifications. I mean, he was only one by the grace of God and by the calling of God, if you think about it, Right? I mean, think about his resume. Paul, why should you be one of the few men in all the history of the world to be chosen by God to have absolute doctrinal authority in the church, an apostle of Jesus Christ? And Paul would say, well, I, um, I persecuted the church rather heavily. And when Stephen was martyred for the faith, I was holding the coats of the best rock throwers. 
And uh, let's see, what else could I put on my resume? I actually instigated several rounds of persecution myself, uh, roughing people up and putting them in jail and uh, forcing them to blaspheme the name of Christ. That doesn't sound like your first order qualifications to be an apostle. In fact, that's what I was doing the day Jesus called me. I was on my way to torment Christians in Syria. It was a divine, sovereign, gracious act where God simply saved Paul, appeared to him, said, by the way, your life's work is changing, you're going to be an apostle for me. So he says, through the grace given to me, I say, only God's undeserved favor, his grace, saved Paul and put him in his position of authority. This is the way he says it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12, just listen. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He can't even discuss it without bursting into a doxology of praise. Unworthy, unbelieving, shown mercy, made incredibly effective, shaping Christian thought and practice for 2,000 years. The man became God's tool. And not only in writing inspired scripture, but as a dauntless missionary and church planter, eventually dying under a Roman axe for the cause of Christ. So we should think like Paul in our church life. Think about yourself, he says, with sound judgment, especially that you not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Think more highly. There's a great verb there in the original language. The base root Greek word for the mind or thinking is phron. And if you've ever heard of phrenology, anybody know what phrenology is? It's when you study the bumps on somebody's head, a phrenologist. People don't do that too much anymore. It used to be a, a science, you know, telling about people by the bumps on their head. That's where they get that word, though, same word. This word is hooperphronane. Hooper is like super, over, above. Very close to the English word idea of super. So don't hooperphronane or overthink about what? Yourself. That's right. Be honest in your evaluation. Paul had just the right balance, I think, as a person. He was truly humble because he was such a great sinner. And he was extremely zealous and active for the kingdom. That is, he didn't let his past sins as an unbeliever keep him from serving God faithfully now. He didn't think of himself, well, I'm so unworthy, I'm just not going to do anything. He knew who he was in himself, and he knew who he was in Christ and had a realistic understanding of what he could accomplish with the Lord's strength. How can a Christian think too highly of himself? How does that actually manifest itself in life? Well, there's several ways. One, I think some people are, are just clueless about their own weaknesses and they're not real open to being talked to about them. So they, they drive on no matter how much damage they're doing. You ever know anybody like that? Try to kind of correct them and 
hey, I know what I'm doing. They just keep moving ahead and they destroy this guy and they mess up this person and they wreck this family and they uh, do all kinds of horrible things and they just go right ahead. You know, the, the, uh, sometimes they just have an area they're doing and they're not gifted for it. The teacher that can't teach, the song leader who can't sing, that's me. Sometimes when no one else is available, people have to step into ministries they know they're not suited for. They do it humbly and they do the best they can and God honors and blesses that. That's a servant spirit that does that. But to create one's own domain in the church and get all offended when gifted people come along to take on some of that load who are actually more gifted than, than you might be, that's thinking too highly of yourself. That's one way we do that. A second way is believing you're indispensable. You know, this church wouldn't make it without me. If I wasn't here, it wouldn't keep going. Well, we all need to minister our gifts and we're all important, but... You know, a church can survive without any individual functioning, doing their part. And uh, it's better if we all do our part. That's what God would want. But if somebody isn't there or moves on or whatever, it isn't going to die. It's healthier to think that everyone is indispensable. You may be important, but God can replace you because there's all kinds of gifted people around. The third way might be believing you're always right. Think That's thinking too highly of yourself. Now, I hope we all strive to be right. We certainly don't want to be wrong. A good a friend of mine uh, said to me one time, he says, you know, you want to be right more than anybody I've ever met in my life. To which I replied, but am I? Huh? Am I? <laughs> so I obviously need to work on that one. That's, that's my area. And, and I'm pretty opinionated about things that I've thought about. Um, but I hope I'm open to thinking a second time if a better position presents itself. And it is healthy to recognize that other people can be good and smart and still disagree with you. And that's okay. We need to balance firm biblical convictions with love for those who have a different conviction. And we need to balance sound convictions versus just personal preferences and get all that stuff sorted out. And fortunately, there are people here to correct me when I fall off the deep end with that. Um, number four would be excessive fault finding. That's a form of thinking too highly of yourself. You know, I'm the one that makes decisions. I can, I can judge that, and I can judge that, and I know all about that, even though I barely know that person, and I can just tell right there. And, uh, you know, if this church would just do that, and they make this decision, and, uh, you know, things you know nothing about hardly, and you make all kinds of critical evaluations, that kind of person is thinking too highly of themselves. In a church, fault-finding can really be elevated to an art form. I mean, uh, some of you may have been in churches like that. And it's not hard to do, because everybody has faults. So, you know, if you're a fault-finder, it's really easy to practice your trade in a group of people. And you can wax eloquent for hours about my faults or Mel's faults or pick, pick someone. See all the people that aren't here to pick on? You've got, you got a smaller group to pick on today. But of course, if you are waxing eloquent without talking to people first about what bothers you about them, you're actually sinning because that's the wrong way to do that. Biblically, you have an obligation to go to that person and tell them how foolish they are before you spread it around. Church life should not be about majoring on people's faults, but graciously confronting faults in love and filling in where there's just weaknesses. We all have strengths and weaknesses. One reason the Bible insists on a plurality of shepherds, there's no church in the, in the Bible where there's only one shepherd, you know, one pastoral type person, one elder. There's not, there isn't any like that. It's always a group, a group. Why? Because one person has strong points and weak points. So a church with only one leader is going to have that person's strengths are going to kind of dominate 
and that person's weaknesses are going to be kind of felt too. But when you have multiple leaders, you've got guys that are strong over here, guys that are strong over here, and guys that are strong over here, and they can make up for each other's weaknesses, and you have a, a, a well-rounded leadership. One-man leadership usually leaves a congregation with major areas of weakness. Now, th this uh, thinking too highly of yourself stuff is very damaging. It's damaging in anybody that's in a church, but it's especially damaging if you're in leadership and you have that attitude. That little book in the back of the Bible, 3 John, it has a comment about a fellow named Diotrephes. Anybody know who Diotrephes is? He only gets one line. Now, how would you like to be in the Bible and have one sentence about you in the Bible and all it is is about what a jerk you are? I mean, that would not be a really great way to be. But there's this guy, Diotrephes, who was so full of himself, he wouldn't even listen to the apostles. Third uh, John, verse 9, it says, John the Apostle, who was just a gentle kind of a son of thunder, he wrote, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. This guy's got it all nailed down. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. So don't be a diatrophies and don't allow a diatrophies to be in leadership in the church. By the way, in our church constitution, an elder every year has to be voted on by the congregation to stay an elder. And three-fourths of the congregation has to approve of him being an elder. So if there was a diatrophies, a very small group of people could oust him. And they should, if there's somebody like that in leadership in our church. If we ever have a diatrophies, there's a way to move him along to another church where he can make trouble. And I have to say here that... Uh, these are dangers to be aware of. But you know, even sharing this with you, it makes me so grateful for the leadership we have in our church. I hope you know your leaders. Your elders have none of these tendencies, except me sometimes. But everybody else doesn't. And there's always people to keep me in check, right? <laughs> to watch out for me. So, you know, Art Truville is the guy that really set the tone, for you, those of you that knew him. And he lived and he served exactly in accordance with what Paul is saying here. That's the kind of elder he was here. And he would tell me, you know, he says, you know, Wayne, I don't have to be an elder. Whatever needs to be done, I'll just do that. I could be a deacon. I can be the janitor. I can, whatever, whatever needs to be. That's exactly the right attitude that you want an elder to have. I would call that a rare quality, except that all of our elders have the same attitude. They really do. All of them. But we need to renew our minds to maintain that and not drift away from that. Bob Smith um, who uh, many years ago was one of the pastors at Peninsula Bible Church, wrote a great little book in the 70s called When All Else Fails, Read the Directions. And the book's about how to run a church, you know, about church theology. And it's a kind of a popular level book, it's just, but it's a great little book. Anyway, he has a, an appendix in the back called 12 Ways to Dominate Instead of Leading. And it goes like this. Here's are the 12 things. One, use your superior knowledge of Scripture to snow the opposition. Two, wrest scripture out of context to use as a club. I've done that once or twice. Three, intimidate by a display of temper, shouting, pouting, and other such kid stuff. Four, threaten to quit if they don't do it your way. Five, seek support for your position by privately persuading other elders. Six, be stubborn and hold out for your way until everyone gets tired and gives in. Seven, sneak the action through when some of the opposition is out of town. 
Anybody got anything they want to try to get done? We could call a special meeting. Make public announcement of a decision before it's made by the board. Then they'll have to do it your way. I like that. I'm going to write that one down in my book. Nine, cut down those who disagree with you and your messages from the pulpit. You know, if anybody ever thinks this, that would be, that would be good. Ten, pull your rank. Tell them the Lord told me to do it this way. <laughs> That's always a good one. Eleven, think through all the answers, plan all the programs, and just tell them what we're going to do. Don't ever open the door for them to think, make suggestions, or plan with you. Number 12, be the whole show on the platform at every meeting. That way nobody else can get a word in. Don't ever ask your men to lead a meeting, pray, read scripture, teach, or anything like that. After all, they've never been trained, and you have, beyond your intelligence. So the truth is, you know, the church isn't any one of us. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about us. It is his project. And, you know, I'm really amazed at how he assembles a body of believers. He knows what we need, and he knows when we need it. I have spent 12 years watching the Lord build up this church, and literally it is watching the Lord do it. It's an amazing process. Uh, and, I, and in moments of weakness, I panic, and I go, oh, no, they can't move, you know, and that kind of stuff. I'm still going through that at times. What will we do? But he always has worked that out, always. And, you know, you want to wrest control from him because you think you know what's best, and that's so foolish because he's always been faithful here. And I attribute that to people praying and being submissive to God's word. He always has honored our needs, always. And where we have lacks, then he wants us to all strive a little harder to fill those gaps. Paul's point is do it God's way and trust in God's wisdom. Isn't that reasonable? And what is God's way? Well, that's a good question. Here it is, verse 3. Um, at the very end of verse 3, he says, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Then verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one of, an one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them accordingly. So in verse 3 there, he starts out with God's gift of faith by which we can measure ourselves. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, he doesn't mean God's giving some people a little bit of faith and God's giving other people big faith. That word measure means like a standard. It's an instrument for measure. So he's saying we all have the capacity to keep our pride in check by the rule of faith which God has given to us, a godly perspective. So now, then in verse 4 and 5, we have a concise, conceptual understanding of what the church is. It's an organism with diverse parts. Look at it one more time. Just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, just think about your own body for a second. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That's God's perspective on the church. Many members, one body, different functions, yet members of one another. The church functions like your body does in a marvelous cooperation. Each part serving the whole. And Paul gives a more expansive discussion of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can go there sometime and read it. But the point is clear. There's no room for arrogance because this is a cooperative, unified venture. And Christ is the head. Then verse 6, and we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We all have charismata. That's the Greek word for grace gifts. 
gracious gifts from God. And these gifts differ so all the needs are met for the body as a whole. Every Christian is gifted by God for service to the body as a whole. Every single Christian. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, But to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit. And then he says these very important words, For the common good. That's what they're for. That's why they've been given to us. The common good of the body. That's why God gave you your particular gifts. There's a challenge in that. And the challenge is, are you doing your part? Is the body... Analogy is really helpful. Imagine a non-cooperative body like when you're driving. Your eyes just decide not to do their part. We're going to close down for a while. Now, the rest of your body might be driving. You might want to stop driving when your eyes close. Your hands refuse to follow your eyes' lead and do what your head says. They want to do their own thing now. They're just going to whatever. Your feet decide quite on their own when to break and to accelerate, regardless of what your mind and eyes and everything else tells them to do. You just, it's so simple to even uh, understand that. Non-cooperation, non-functioning can lead to disaster. Every part must be governed by the head or you're in a lot of trouble. So it is in a local body of the church. Some parts don't work, some parts don't cooperate. And I guess it's always that way to some point in every church. Some parts have to be made up for by the functioning part. But brothers and sisters, you have been given a gift from God for the common good. He has given you a gift for the common good. That's a wonderful thing. And who would not want to exercise that? What are you going to do with your gift? How are you going to use it? Paul actually gives us a sample list here. It's not a complete list. There are four lists of gifts in the New Testament and they're all different. So this is just a sampling. But here's seven things starting in verse 6, how they should be carried out and how, how they should be carried out there. Prophecy is number one. Now, we don't have prophets. Anybody hear a prophet? No, don't answer that because somebody might say yes. <laughs> a prophet is someone who receives divine revelation directly from God. Before the Bible was finished, prophets were really important, but like the apostles, they were, Ephesians 2.20 says very clearly, apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Now we're building on that foundation, so we don't have prophets anymore, but there were prophets when Paul wrote this. That's a gift. They proclaim God's word directly from God. Now we study and proclaim God's word because we have it inscripturated, the words of the prophets written down. Number two, verse seven, service. Service. If service in his serving for he who teaches and he or he who teaches in his teaching. There's two things there in verse seven, service and teaching. Service, if your gift is service, you should be serving. Hey, that's pretty simple, huh? If service, in your serving. And the word there is the same word where we get our word deacon. Deaconing, or serving, is helping other folks out. You can be deaconing without being a deacon, you know. But people that are on the deacon board or the deaconess board, that's what they're doing. They're serving people. They're meeting the needs of other people. Some people are gifted servants. I mean, all of us can help each other. But there's some people, that's just their delight. It's just what they love to do, to minister to the needs of other people. It's their gift, and they just want to do it. It's not in any way an inconvenience for them because that's where they're happy. That's a gift of service. They delight in blessing other people with assistance. That's a wonderful gift. Teaching is the second one there on verse 7. That's the process of communicating God's truth in His Word. It involves 
a lot of work and dedication and thought and study and some skill. Some people are just good at it. Communicating truth, that's a gift of God. Number four, exhortation. Verse eight, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. This is an interesting word. Um, para kalon is the Greek word. Para means um, beside and kale is to call out. So it's one who is called alongside. That's the individual who coaches you through life's struggle. Exhortation is one way to translate it. Some translators prefer the word encouragement because exhortation sort of sounds like, you'd better be doing this. And that could be that. But it could also be a very gentle um, coming alongside and praying with somebody, encouraging them, helping them through a difficult time. That's a gift. That's a gift. Some of the quietest people in the church have this gift. They come alongside. You don't notice it. They come alongside and they help somebody and encourage them. And you, you don't hear about it. They don't, they don't come up here very often. Those kind of people. Fifth thing he mentions there in verse 8 is giving. He who gives with liberality. Givers get a lot of happiness from taking care of people's material needs. They see somebody that's struggling with something and they just provide it quietly on the side. They make sure they've got this or that or what they need. They take care of that bill that poor person couldn't pay or make sure the church has its funds for its ministries. And Now, everyone should give, of course, just as everyone should serve and everyone should encourage. But this is a special gift. Some people are just geared this way. That's what they find their delight in. The sixth thing is leading. He who leads with diligence. Leaders should be diligent. Leaders need to put effort into it. There are always things to be done. Right, guys? And leaders should not be lax. And then finally he says, the seventh thing, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. The idea of um, often is often connected to the person that's visiting the sick or visiting somebody that might be dying or the bereaved or someone else in difficulty, maybe prisoners, people in prison or jail. Showing mercy should be done cheerfully. Ever be in a hospital and you're laying there dying and somebody comes in who's not cheerful to wait to, to encourage you? Uh, that's not a person with the gift of mercy. Well, you think you got a bad, you know, when I had my operation, well, you know, that's not, that's not what they're, that's not really what you want. Um, showing mercy should be done cheerfully. The Greek word is where we get our word hilarious. You should be merciful with hilarity. That's really what the word is. Should be, a, and that doesn't mean, oh, it just means uh, really cheerful. Not resentful, not glum or sullen, but with a desire to minister some sunshine in a dark place. Proverbs 17:22 says, a cheerful heart is a good medicine, and a broken, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. So as we work through each of these, you know, even just reading these through this morning and, and thinking about them, my mind immediately, for every one of these, is filled with people from our church. I can just put faces to all of these different gifts. People in our congregation that do these things, and we're different. Not everybody can come up here and preach a sermon. And that's, Jason Homer wants to, but I'm keeping my call. But, um, <laughs> that's a joke, if you guys remember Jason when he came up. But, uh, but, uh, but th there's things that I don't do that well. And there's things that, you know, there's all these different things. And not just these seven. There's many other things, too. Different kinds of gifts. God has blessed us as a church with gifted people who use their gifts. But as I said, everyone has been called to work for the common good of all. That is God's plan. Don't think too highly of yourself. Serve other people. Don't think too highly of yourself. Use what God has given you. Now, I know you may have some very important things to do. 
But what could that possibly be? That's more important than using the gift that God has given you. God has given you. That's an amazing thing. There's an old rhyme, um, which must have come from a very weary brother. He says, Oh, to dwell in love with the saints above, that would be glory. But to dwell here below with the saints I know, that's another story. <laughs> I sense the fellow who wrote that may be thinking too highly of himself because he might be somebody that somebody else finds annoying as well <laughs> or difficult to get along with. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't treat people that way or have that attitude? And I know he got frustrated. He says sometimes, men of little faith, how long shall I put up with you? He said that. But then he'd get right down in it and minister to them in every possible way he could. You know, I'm always amazed at how Jesus was on this intense schedule to get through all the cities of Israel and do all this. And he'd always stop. And they would talk about how these people would be pressing. And he'd just stop and take care of all their needs. He, sometimes you see in films or something him running away from people. He didn't do that. He always stopped and ministered to people's needs. And that's what we should be like, like him. He had great gifts. But so do we, because the same spirit animates us. And wonderful, amazing things can happen if we exercise our gifts for the common good in the church, as he's asked us to do. It's exciting. It really is exciting when you do that. You know when church is dull? When you're not exercising your gift. That's when it's all like, yeah, I don't know what all that's all about. But when you're in it and ministering your gift to other people, it's not dull. It's exciting. Let's pray. Father, let us have the same love for your church that you do. And you love it so much, you died for it. And you love it so much, you gave gifts to it. Apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers, offices. But also you gave gifts to us, each one of us. Things that if we would exercise them, we would find spiritual power there because you're behind it. And I pray that you'd give us the desire to, do, to exercise those things. That you give us the joy of service. That you'd help us find our place. Maybe we don't know what our gift is. There's ways to find out, to start doing stuff. And we just pray that you would help us in that. And Lord, make us stronger by making us more full of the love that would be true of Jesus if he were here. And we thank you. And we pray in his name. Amen.